Thank you for calling Houston Women's Reproductive Services. I regret to inform you that as of today, Friday, June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade, a landmark decision that legalized abortion almost 50 years ago. What that means is we are no longer able to provide abortion care. At this one abortion clinic in Houston, the news came a little after 9 a.m. Central Time. Some patients were standing outside waiting for their appointments. There were other people already in the waiting room. Our reporter, Caroline Kitchener, was inside the clinic, too. She went there knowing that this moment might come today. I, of course, was obsessively checking my phone, and I saw it, like, a minute before anybody did in the clinic. So I knew they were about to find out, and I didn't want to be the one to tell them. Caroline has been covering abortion all year. She spent a lot of time in Texas because there was already a ban on abortions there after six weeks. Caroline watched in real time today as the staff saw the news on a computer, gathered around the screen, and started to cry. And she turned on her recorder. The phones just kept ringing and ringing and ringing, and everyone just stared at them because no one wanted to pick it up. I think that they didn't have a plan because they didn't want to have a plan. Can we do abortions today? We've overturned it. We're done. Right now, we're done. And Kathy, who's in charge of the clinic, and another staff member, they just took people back into the ultrasound rooms and, you know, one by one told them. I would rather pull them into a private room where we can give them the referrals and stuff to have that discussion. I, I, I think it's more, I'm more comfortable with that for the patient's sake. Just bring them in. Bring them in. Some people were calm. Some people were like, okay, you know, tell me where I can go. And others just, I saw so many women just crying as they left the clinic, just in tears. So I had my appointment today at 10.30, and I was driving in, and the aunt called me and told me about um, the Supreme Court over switching the road versus Wade, and um, it just stopped in tears. I talked with a woman named Victoria she was just so distraught to me I'm on my way to appointment I came here yesterday filled all my paperwork out had my ultrasound I'm I'm five weeks there's no heartbeat and then right away like my rights were just taken she wants to try to go to Illinois but she said that's her entire savings like now you know, to get there, to make that trip, to make that appointment, she's going to have to use all of the extra money that she has, and she's going to be paycheck to paycheck. I mean, I just, she's just one of so many today. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 24th. The Supreme Court has ruled to overturn Roe v. Wade. 
there is no longer a constitutionally protected right to an abortion in America. This decision has sent shockwaves through the country. In at least a dozen red states, trigger laws will ban virtually all abortions from taking place. More restrictions are expected to come quickly, and abortion could soon be illegal in nearly half the states in the country. Outside the Supreme Court today, hundreds of people gathered. For activists who have fought for years to end abortion in the U.S., this was a moment of celebration. We're going to close in prayer and then we'll start the dance party. But this was also a moment of grief and of anger for the many people outside the court protesting in support of abortion access. This decision must not stand. Legal abortion on demand. Legal abortion on demand. Rise up for abortion rights, for abortion rights, rise up. I'm not surprised, but it still, it still hits really hard. I'm from Texas. And in Texas, they plan to criminalize abortion, which means up to life sentences for abortion providers. And I'm, I'm just very afraid for, for the world that we've just stepped into. Our producers Robin Amer and Natalie Bettendorf were outside the court. They spoke to three young women from South Carolina. Can you just, t- I just saw you guys run up to each other and hug. Yes. I am so, so first. They're best friends who work at a pregnancy resource center. We've helped women choose life. We've helped women who are post-abortive. So this is a big moment for us as friends and as people who have worked in this moment. Yeah, we've all been, all three together, in the fight together. Um, I'm so thankful for these two girls by my side. And there's no one else that I'd rather be with in front of the Supreme Court right now. Yeah, it's just been amazing. Uh, Yeah. There was another young woman named Nina from the group Students for Life. We've been working hard to make sure that both the woman and the child can be protected. And that this is just one step closer that we get to that. Robin asked Nina what it meant to be a black woman in the pro-life movement. Well, as a black woman, I feel great that I get to make sure that black people, black women, have support just like anybody else. That's why I'm here. Other people, like a retired school teacher named Hannah, said that they were feeling scared for the future. I'm 66, nearly 67, and um, I can tell you that uh, the women I know of my age are livid, furious, um, and I'm near tears. Don't know what to say. It's hard. So I've noticed that there are like many, many, many young women out here today, like in their early 20s or late teens, who are part of the um, anti-abortion, quote-unquote, pro-life movement, and they're celebrating. What do you make of women from that generation who obviously were not around, you know, when Roe was first enacted, who are who have been fighting to end it? I worry for them. I don't know if they understand. Um, what choice means? I don't. I don't honestly understand that mindset. Um, I. I realize they are in the minority, and I just hope um, they will be okay, and that they understand. When this gets corrected, that they will be safer. I believe it will be corrected one day. It's got to be. Robin and Natalie also talked to a man named Josh who lives in D.C. 
tears were running down his face as he talked about the conversations that he'd had with his family after Politico published the leaked draft of this decision. After the decision leaked, I started talking to my family more about how upsetting this was, how I was feeling, and had several very close members of my family, including my aunt, kind of revealed that they had had abortions. And I see what her life is today um, what it would have been had she not had that autonomy. Um, I think uh, sort of having it come so close to home and seeing that up close uh, really drove home how critical it is that she was able to have um, a full life as she designed it for herself. And um, the idea that there are women across the country, particularly low-income women, particularly black and brown women, who yesterday would have had that opportunity and today has been snatched away, um, that hurts. read for me the few sentences from this decision that basically overturned Roe v. Wade. Here's the key passage from Justice Alito. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and this decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. That's Robert Barnes. He covers the Supreme Court for The Post. And we talked to him today to understand what this decision does and what it means. In many ways, this ruling is what so many of us expected. We all saw that draft opinion two months ago, and we knew that this is where the court was headed. Bob, what was your reaction when you saw this decision? Well, I guess we've been prepared for it a little bit. As we all know, a leaked draft of the opinion came out, and the opinion by Justice Alito doesn't seem much different from that one, except with some concurring opinions by some of the justices and a a very strong dissent by the court's three liberals. The one person in the middle of all of this was Chief Justice John Roberts. He voted with the majority to uphold this one anti-abortion law in Mississippi. But he did not go along with overturning Roe v. Wade and another significant abortion case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And that's important because it shows how polarized the court is, how much the conservative justices feel empowered to take bold actions on their own. And Bob says that in many ways, this decision has huge implications for abortion, of course, but potentially for other landmark civil rights cases and for the future of the court itself. Well, Justice Alito wrote the opinion. He was joined by Justice Clarence Thomas, who has been on the court for 30 years and said in his first year on the court that he thought Roe should be overturned. So a very— So we knew where he stood on that. A very long-term project. And then all three of President Trump's nominees to the court agreed to overturn Roe. You'll recall that at their confirmation hearings, they were— non-committal on that. 
So let me try again. Do you agree with Justice Scalia's view that Roe was wrongly decided? <clears throat> Senator, I completely understand why you are asking the question, but again, I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda, because I'm not. I don't have any agenda. I have no agenda to try to overrule Casey. Um, I have an agenda to stick to the rule of law and decide cases as they come. Some thought that they had sort of signaled that they would not overturn uh, a precedent that's been around for nearly 50 years. Others thought that that's not what they were saying, and we found out today that they were ready to do it. It's really a remarkable speed for the court to move like this, and it really shows how very conservative justices are now in the majority and ready to overturn a very long-held precedent. So I want to talk a little bit more about the case at the center of this, because, of course, the question that was before the court here was not just, are we going to overturn Roe v. Wade, but it was about this specific law in Mississippi that was passed but never went into effect that would have banned virtually all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Can you take me back to the oral arguments for that case and moments where it started to become clear that some of the justices were poised to make this decision? Yeah, well, let me take you back even further than that, because I think what's really significant about this case is it came to the court when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive. She died in September of 2020. The court didn't take the case then. She was replaced by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and the court still waited for a very long time before it accepted the case. Mm. Originally, Mississippi said neither Roe nor Casey needed to be disturbed in order to rule for their law. It said that the court only needed to find that not all abortions were prohibited before what is called viability, when the fetus would be able to survive outside the womb. That's about 22 to 24 weeks. And so the court took the case with that very limited question, are all pre-viability abortions unconstitutional? And instead, when Mississippi filed its merits brief in the case, it said Roe and Casey had to be overturned, that there was no way to uphold the law without doing that. Interesting. So what you're saying is that it started to become clear, even for the folks who were part of this lawsuit, that there was an opportunity here not just to let this one law in Mississippi stand, but if they argued it the right way, that they could be part of bringing down Roe v. Wade altogether. That's right. It, it was sort of seized upon as the vehicle for what the conservative legal movement has been trying to do for decades now, which is to get Roe overturned and return the issue of abortion to state legislatures. And, and can you talk about some of those moments from that case where you heard from justices like Justice Thomas or Justice Barrett with questions to the, the lawyers that made it clear that they were thinking this? Right. Well, what was striking was that the new members of the court, Justice Kavanaugh, for instance, did not seem interested in a compromise. His view, which he reiterated in a concurring opinion today, is that the Constitution is neutral on this subject. It doesn't mention abortion. In other words, that the Constitution's neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, but leaves 
the issue for the people of the states or perhaps Congress to resolve in the democratic process. Is that accurate? Right. We're saying it's left to the people, Your Honor. And he, as I say, reiterated today that we should be neutral and let elected officials do this. Justice Barrett also didn't seem interested in a compromise. In fact, only the chief justice seemed interested and tried to float the idea of a very narrow opinion that would simply say, yes, some abortions pre-viability can be allowed. But that didn't draw interest from either side, the liberals Mm -hmm. or the conservatives. And so he was left alone in that uh, opinion. Yeah, I want to talk more about Chief Justice Roberts here and what he was trying to do. I mean, that he's in this interesting place where he both ruled with the majority on some part of this, but then didn't rule with them on another part of this. And that, I don't know, from an outsider, it seems like he's the one guy in the middle trying to hold everyone together and that it clearly didn't work. Uh, The chief justice is very worried about the court's legitimacy and the way the public views the court. Uh, He uh, is a guy who uh, very much would like to move the court's jurisprudence to the right, but he wants to do it incrementally in small steps. I don't think he ever really wanted to see, or at least not at this point, a headline that says the Supreme Court overrules Roe v. Wade, but that's just what he's gotten. And it shows that this is one issue where he's not in control. What else surprised you from reading this decision in terms of the reasoning that was used by the majority here? I think what was surprising is that it went so far so fast. There were ways to take more incremental approaches in this. It would have certainly changed the right that was found in Roe and reaffirmed in Casey. But there were ways, you know, for instance, Casey says that, you know, before viability, states can't do things that would put an undue burden on the right to abortion. You could have seen that this would be a case in which the court would have said it's not an undue burden to forbid abortion after 15 weeks because more than 90 percent of abortions occur by then. In Mississippi, where the case comes from, the only clinic in the state doesn't do abortions after 16 weeks. And so there was the possibility for a narrow ruling there. But these conservative justices who have been around for a long time, Thomas and Alito, were really ready to make the change. And these new justices from President Trump were with them and perhaps think this is a way to keep themselves from being tied up with the issue of abortion for years and years to come. I think that's a little unlikely. I think that there are going to be lots of challenges still to come that the Supreme Court has to decide, but uh, they were ready to make the big move now. After the break, we hear the justices who dissented in this opinion and their fears that this decision could have consequences that go way beyond abortion. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. 
The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Bob, I also want to ask you a little bit about the dissent in this case. And I'm remembering back to those oral arguments in this case and and hearing Justice Sonia Sotomayor talk about how she really feared that this ruling would be seen as political. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. I I, I don't see how it is possible. So what did she end up saying in this dissent now? I mean, what what are the other justices saying about why they disagree with the majority and what the consequences of this could be? Well, the three liberal justices wrote a joint dissent, all three of them signing onto it rather than the way it's often done where one person writes and others join it. They said that it was a devastating decision for women, that it was harmful to equality. It said that women from the moment of uh, fertilization don't have control over their bodies and can be forced to carry a pregnancy to term. It's very, very strong language. It also says that this calls into question other rights that were found in this way that are not specifically in the Constitution, the right to birth control, the court's decision that said homosexual conduct could not be outlawed, um, the decision that states must offer marriage to same-sex couples. Now, the majority says that those issues are not at play here, and they are not called into question by this decision. This decision is about abortion only. But the dissent says that they don't see how that could be true, that Mm. either the majority doesn't believe its own reasoning, as they put it, or these rights are at risk as well. And and didn't Justice Thomas also allude to that in his concurring opinion, that there could be uh, a moment here to reevaluate some of those decisions on contraception or same-sex relationships or same-sex marriage? Yes, Justice Thomas's concurring opinion seemed a bit contradictory in that he said he agreed with the majority that those issues weren't at stake because of this ruling. But he also said that, you know, this reasoning that underlies these decisions on sexual conduct and on same-sex marriage all should be revisited in the future. Mm -hmm. And he said that perhaps uh, they are justified under other forms of constitutional rights, but not the what is called the due process clause. I mean, that's a pretty scary prospect, I think, for a lot of people in America to think about those decisions being reconsidered or, or, or that there is even just discussion around what it would look like to have more conversations about whether these things that are now legal will, in fact, be legal in the future. When this draft opinion leaked, you know, there was a lot of commentary and talk that the way this decision was written, it would call into question those uh, and those people 
they were sort of said, no, this is only about abortion. It's sort of hysterical to talk about Mm -hmm. uh, these things. The slippery slope argument doesn't work here. Yeah, but, you know, they feel justified today. Mm -hmm. Are there any other big takeaways about where the court is right now that that you're seeing? I mean, beyond just abortion, but, you know, what what does this mean for the, for the future of this court and where their heads are at? Yeah. The larger picture on this is we've got a court that is very conservative and very much in a hurry. The Supreme Court didn't have to take up this term abortion and guns and several religion cases, but they did. And they ruled in a conservative way on all of those questions. Um, You know, the gun decision was a very big one, and it will be sort of lost in the aftermath of the Roe decision. But what this shows is there is a group on the court uh, that is very conservative, very willing to move quickly, and uh, very unconcerned in the way that the chief justice is about overturning precedent or uh, living by the court's previous decisions. Tell me about what this decision could mean for the future of the anti-abortion movement, both in terms of laws that could be passing in states around the country, um, frankly, even as we speak, um, but also what it could mean nationally. Well, it's a little hard to say in that the thrust of the opinion is we are returning this back to the states. Those are the elected officials. They're the ones closest to this. They're the ones that should make these decisions. But we haven't seen what the court would do with sort of federal legislation, even if that could be passed. Seems very unlikely in this Congress. As you say, I think we'll see states move very quickly, some of them, to get rid of abortion. We have also seen a number of states, even before this, pass laws that reestablish and reiterate the right to abortion in their states. Uh, Some of them have said that they would become sort of sanctuaries for those who want abortions. And so, you know, just like the rest uh, of America, I think we'll see it divided along red states and blue states. The question also is politics. You know, for a long time, it was said that the court and courts sort of protected anti-abortion legislators, um, that those legislators knew that they could pass laws that outlawed abortion And they wouldn't really suffer because they would never go into effect. The courts Hmm. wouldn't let them go into effect, and so people wouldn't feel the real um, impact of them. Hmm. Well, now that won't be the case. People will feel the impact. Those laws will go into effect, and we'll see if that makes a political difference. So are you saying that there could be a world where some Republican legislators that have voted in favor of abortion restrictions could actually be worried about the reaction when those restrictions go into place? You know, I don't know. That's always been the argument, and we'll see if it plays out. I don't think that that's certainly been the case in Texas, where abortion is basically outlawed after six weeks because of the unusual and unique law that they passed to get around Roe. Abortion is essentially not available in Oklahoma now, and I don't see a big backlash there. And so we'll sort of see how strongly uh, the two sides of this debate can bring their supporters out. 
And, and I, you can't just you can't understate how big a moment this is for the anti-abortion movement, and how long they've been working toward this. So uh, that's right. Can, can you just talk a little bit about about what this decision represents in terms of their their organizing power and their commitment to to this kind of success? Well, it's, I mean, it's sort of multifaceted. Um, it's been a movement that's been very strong really ever since Roe. I mean, they they would contend that the Supreme Court took away this issue from, you know, our normal democratic process in a way that they shouldn't have. And that that is what has sort of led to these years and years of fight. And, I mean, the other thing uh, not to be understated here is— Mitch McConnell's role mm-hmm. in not Senate majority leader and that's the, right the the man who you could argue orchestrated uh, making sure that these justices were on the court and remember uh, made sure that President Obama did not fill Justice Scalia's seat when he died in February of 2016 that left the seat open for President Trump to make a nomination, and his first was Neil Gorsuch, who is in the majority today. I mean, it's uh, it, it, we could have had a court in which liberals were in control, at least for a while, and instead we've got a, a six-member conservative majority, five of whom took this dramatic step today. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Bob Barnes. He covers the Supreme Court for The Post. And earlier, you heard our colleague Caroline Kitchener, who covers abortion. On Friday afternoon, President Biden spoke from the White House, calling on Congress to take things into their own hands and pass a federal law that would codify the protections of Roe v. Wade. With this decision, the conservative majority of the Supreme Court shows how extreme it is, how far removed they are from the majority of this country. They made the United States an outlier among developed nations in the world. But this decision must not be the final word. The Post will continue to cover the fallout from this huge decision throughout the weekend. So make sure you're checking back at WashingtonPost.com for more updates. And on Monday, we will have a story in Post Reports from a couple in Texas. They're teenagers, and they wanted to have an abortion last year, but couldn't because of the new law in Texas. Now they have twins. What life might look like after Roe v. Wade? That will be on Monday. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was produced by Emma Talkoff, Sabi Robinson, Robin Amer, and Natalie Bettendorf. It was mixed by our senior producer, Ted Muldoon, and our engineer, Sean Carter. It was edited by our executive producer, Maggie Penman. The supervising senior producer of our show is Rena Flores. Our editor is Alexis Diao. Jordan Marie Smith, Ariel Plotnick, and Renny Spernowski are producers. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.